amazing the intelligence, the articulation that you came out with. I was just like, oh my gosh, is this those? Is that those little kids? That, Thank like, you. You know, it was just <laughs> unbelievable. You had a big part in raising me. Oh my gosh! I don't, no, you got you got some. That must have come from like Bob and Terry or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> This is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I created this podcast to help me, a pastor, better understand people and the way they view the world. Now I'm inviting you into the conversation so together we might search for expressions of hope in daily life. Guests on the show are not authorities. They're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. I try to provide the guests freedom to talk and let them determine the direction of the conversation. Then at the end, I provide a spiritual reflection on the things I heard my guests say. Each show, I ask listeners to listen like good camp counselors. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen to what the camper is trying to say. People who listen tend to understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show. It's her story. This past January, over 5 million women and men marched in what became known as the Women's March. It was a worldwide grassroots response to the election of Donald Trump as the President of the United States. While people marched for many rights, the majority of people marched out of a growing frustration with gender inequality. Some who opposed the march tried to frame it as a pro-abortion rally for women who hated men and wanted to kill babies. It was in direct response to this type of opposition that Janine Cabrera posted a portion of her story on Facebook. Janine and her sisters were children in the church Peggy and I served in Brooklyn. She was also a camper at the camp we worked at in New York. Peggy read Janine's story and told me I needed to read it. When I did read it, I knew I needed to share it. So I reached out to Janine and she was eager to talk. As we Skyped, it hit me. I met Janine and her family when she was six years old. The last time I saw her face to face, she was 12. This little girl who once ran around Brooklyn with a smile that filled the world with joy, was now a mother, a writer, an advocate, and an amazingly articulate, thoughtful person. As we spoke through her pain, it didn't take long for me to realize she still radiates the same joy she did as a child. I'm sure you'll pick up on it in her voice. It's a long, emotional story, but it's an amazing story that I'm sure will capture your heart and your attention. To properly cover it, I needed to break it up into two different shows, and so this will be part one of It's Her Story. I'm going to try to limit my voice in the show because it's not my story. It's her story. (laughs) Except right away, I had to interject when she brought up age. It made me feel so old. My name is Janine Cabrera. I will be turning 38 this March. Oh, don't you have to say that. 
Okay. It's an important part of the story. Yeah, okay, but it, you didn't have, like, I mean, it's like, I mean, you're a camper, you're one of my youth group kids. I barely made it being a mom again. <laughs> okay. All right, we have to go there. We have to go yeah. there. Oh, man. I've uh, been born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, the youngest of three sisters. I got married at 19. You know, I was in a rush to move out of my house. My mom was so strict. We decided to have a baby the next year. And I miscarried the first pregnancy I ever had, um, which was emotional. And, you know, as a 20-year-old, you don't understand why you're healthy and all these things. And, you know, I was told it's very common. It's your body. You know, your body kind of cleans itself out and you can try again. So I did. I tried again within a few months. And uh, it was the longest pregnancy. You know, you would think that I was at the prime of my life. It should have been easy, but it wasn't. I had all these complications. I was dilating early. I was on home IV. I was so sick with nausea, I couldn't keep anything down. So it was really touch and go through the whole pregnancy. Um, I ended up going into an early delivery at about 30 34 weeks, I had already been given some uh, shots to develop his lungs and stuff. So thank God he was born perfect and healthy and no complications, smooth delivery. But it wasn't the easiest pregnancy. So I wish I would have kind of uh, taken that into consideration as I tried to have children later on. You know, I really didn't think anything of it other than, oh, it was just a bad pregnancy. You know, Mm -hmm. little did I know that that would start the journey of you know, more than 10 years of of me trying to get pregnant again and and carry to term. Miscarriages are more common than people realize. It remains a topic we don't like to discuss. Matter of fact, people, including women, don't like to talk about the biological side of pregnancy. So I will warn you, Janine is going to talk about women's anatomy. And it's hard to discuss pregnancy without naming the body parts. Each body, each pregnancy, each delivery is unique in and of itself. A lesson Janine will soon learn in more detail than she ever wanted to know. Let's listen. I got divorced about uh, four years later and I met Ivan, my, my husband now. And uh, after a few years, we decided, you know, to try. I wanted to have another baby. My son was already getting older. He was asking for a sibling. And Ivan and I just kept miscarrying. And I really wasn't being given any explanation to why that would happen, what was going on. Just, you know, try again, try again, try again. And that's what I kept doing. You know, I became almost obsessed with it. You know, why I kept miscarrying at, at such early stages, you know, seven weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, 14 weeks. I really wasn't giving my body a break to kind of heal itself and recuperate. I just, the more hurt that I became from all these losses, you know, it became like, I got to get pregnant again. I got to get pregnant again. You know, I think that really took a toll on my body. I could not heal myself. Mm-hmm. And the more abuse I went, you know, every time you, you have a miscarriage, they, they do a DNC and... You know, it's a lot of scarring and, and things that build up in your body. And no one was really explaining all that to me, you know, that I needed to give my body a break. I needed to heal. I needed to let my 
my my uterus and and system get strong again. And emotionally, I needed to take a break, you know. Um, so I kept pushing myself and feeling more broken with each loss. Mm-hmm. Feeling like, you know, why can't I do this simple task that all my friends seem to have no issue with? Mm-hmm. You know, I have friends that are pregnant and they're going hiking and, you know, doing all these crazy things. And it's like, you know, people keep telling me, oh, you're fragile, you're fragile. And I always felt like, you know, this tough girl from, you know, Kwayanee. I, I went camping and hiking and I was always like a boy in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. I always prided myself on my strength, you know, and, and yet I couldn't have a baby. Uh, in 2009, I got pregnant and we were excited. And, you know, I told my doctor, you know, what are we going to do different? You know, what are we going to do to to make sure that, that I don't miscarry? So they, they did a couple of different things that, you know, research said help like blood thinners and uh, progesterone hormone. And um, I was getting these weekly shots and things like that. They, they uh, referred me to a high-risk doctor who was seeing me and, and kind of doing a sonogram every two weeks to make sure that the baby was developing well and my cervix was, was intact and holding this baby in. He suggested that I go on bed rest, that I leave my job. Um, this was the new infrastructure company I was working for. So, you know, I really wanted to show them that I was committed to the position and that I wasn't going to flake after, you know, taking on this position. I had wonderful health insurance that I didn't have to contribute to. And I wanted that. I needed that health insurance. You know, I refused. I refused to go on bed rest. I said, I can do this. You know, but living in Staten Island, commuting into Manhattan, I had to take a ferry, a train, a bus, all to get to work every day. So, you know, it was a lot more on my body than I want to admit you know, the stress and the commute and all these things that were going on and um, working long hours and then coming home and being a a wife and a mom and helping with homework. It's kind of catch-22, isn't it? We admire people who tough it out. We put pressure on people to tough it out. But then we can't understand why people don't decide to take the rest when they need it, even for their own health. In Janine's case, she needs the insurance, but doesn't want to cheat the company. It's hard to explain a New York City commute to those who don't make one, but imagine being packed in like sardines on a boat, a train, and a bus, then being pushed around like a roller derby match at every single stop. Janine learns the impact of what she was putting her body through too late. And at 22 weeks, I went in for a checkup with the high-risk doctor and he said, you know, the baby is already half out. You know, you're, you're losing the baby. There's nothing you can do. Devastated. I went to the, to the hospital with my, my husband and, you know, I got so used to miscarriages that I just kind of assumed that they were going to handle it. You know, I was naive, still kind of young, thought they were going to take the baby out and, you know, that would be it. But they said, no, you know, you're going to have to deliver this baby. I, I couldn't believe it. I, you know, I was in shock. I went into early delivery. I had to physically push the baby out. The baby was alive when he was born. You know, it happened so fast. 
you know, to get my mom, that my mom wasn't even able to really get there and my support and to really think things through of what I was going to do with this baby once it was born, you know, there's just so much coming at you, you know, with questions and, and things like that. It's just so much to process. Mm-hmm. And, uh, after I had the baby, you know, he was alive for a couple of hours and, um, you know, the hospital kept trying to come and, and take him from me. And I was like, you're not taking this baby from me. You know, I'm going to hold this baby until he passes. Um, before the baby came, I asked the hospital, what can we do? You know, can we save him? Is there anything we can do? And, and she said, uh, the nurse said, and the doctor said, you know, we, we don't do any life-saving measures on babies this, this age because they're not considered viable. Um, they're not considered, you know, at a point where they could survive. The baby's still so underdeveloped that the baby would have like a, a 95% chance of having some form of handicap. She said, you can try to fight it. You can, you know, maybe transfer you to another hospital, but it's something you and your husband have to, have to, you know, really decide right now. Um, and at that point, I had the best insurance. So I kept saying, you know, why isn't my, you know, insurance going to cover this? But at that point, it was just the hospital that was at that didn't, consider this a viable baby. Other hospitals had different procedures. It was a big blow. You know, I thought that I felt this baby moving inside of me. You know, I used to talk to the baby. I felt like there was already this bond going on there. And for them to tell me that the baby wasn't viable, it wasn't developed enough to me, I was like, you know, this baby responds to me. You, you know, what do you, what do you mean this baby's right. not viable? This is a baby, you know? Right. You know, we did research really quick on our phones. We were like, you know, I'm in labor and having contractions and we're trying to, to Google stuff and, you know, reading horrible reports of, of all these, you know, machines hooked up to these babies. And, you know, I said, when the baby comes, we'll see how developed he is. And if he's severely undeveloped, then I, I don't want to put all these machines on him and all these, you know, needles and things and, if this was God's will for me to not carry this baby to term, then that's something I have to deal with, you know, and, and make peace with. Um, but if the baby looks like it's developed, then I'd like to transfer. I'd like to find a hospital that we could transfer the baby to an emergency and, and see what we could do. I have the best insurance. My insurance should cover this. Right. Right. So, you know, when the baby came, it was severely undeveloped. It's, it's skin was still translucent. His eyes were, were still fused together. And, you know, my, my husband and I looked at each other and we just said, you know, it'd be selfish. It'd be selfish to, to put him through what he's about to go through if, if we transfer him, you know. Maybe we should just let this happen naturally. You know, the hospital just is like procedure as, as normal, you know. They, they just kind of came in and were like, you know, do you want to take the baby? We'll take the baby. And you know, my husband and I were just trying to have this moment. We wanted our kids to come and meet the baby. We wanted to have some sense that that this wasn't just a miscarriage, that this was, you know, a birth and that there was a baby here. And, and even though he wasn't going to survive, that that it was a significant event for our family. So, you know, I, I demanded that the hospital leave us alone and that they leave me with my baby. Mm-hmm. And um, I demanded that he be issued a birth certificate. And I wanted to name him, and I did. I named him. Um, I demanded that a pastor be brought up to baptize the baby, and we did that. I made sure that a relative brought my kids over and my stepdaughters. And I asked everyone to just leave us alone, you know, leave us alone with, with my baby, Matthew. We named mm-hmm. him uh, Ivan Matthew Lopez. 
and spent a few hours alone with him. It just made me feel like like this birth really happened and that this baby really got to meet some members of my family and that, you know, it wasn't just such a, a quick little thing that was done away with, the way right. the hospital kind of was, was trying to make it happen. You know, after a couple of hours, we were kind of laughing and I'm, I'm holding this baby in my arms and, you know, we're sharing stories and, and joy and moments. And, you know, it turned out to be a beautiful experience that, um, you know, looking back on it now, I'm glad that I put my foot down and asked for the time that I had with the baby. Right. Um, and then when, you know, it was time to let the baby go, I had to let the baby go. But I decided that I, I wanted to cremate the baby and have a funeral service for the baby and. Wanted to go forth with everything that I felt my faith and my my religion, my upbringing, you know, kind of said, you know, this is how you should handle this. We asked for, for the remains and we had a, a funeral service in Brooklyn and we cremated the baby and we brought him home. And, you know, I thought that was the beginning of healing and the end of that suffering and... A ritual can help you process the moment, but it doesn't heal all the wounds. Some of the deepest scars don't come to the surface until life expects you to get back to normal. You know, when you go home and the dust settles, everything kind of starts to hit you that you're not pregnant anymore and you got to get back to work soon. and you know, life has to, has to kind of resume and, and uh, the anger set in, you know, I was very, very angry. Angry at who? Everyone. I was angry at everyone. I was angry at my husband because I felt that I still needed to work and had, you know, I not felt so obligated to work still, you know, maybe I could have gone on bed rest. I was angry at, you know, my mom for not being able to make it to the hospital in time to meet the baby. I was angry at friends for not reaching out, you know, and, and coming to, to support me and say, how are you feeling? You know, I had such an extended network of friends. You know, my husband and I were so social right. and we had so many people around us. But when this happened, it was like radio silence. There was no one around. You know, I was just angry at God. I felt that, you know, I lived my life in stewardship. I lived my life to be a good person. And I could not understand why some of my other friends who just were not the best parents, you know, would just have two and three and four kids and, you know, not really understand the value of it. And I was just angry at everything. I was so angry. You know, I, I became very bitter and I pushed people away. People who did try to reach out, I pushed them away. And mm -hmm. the people who did call, you know, I found their words offensive, you know, things like, you know, don't worry, you're young, you can try again. You know, people try to find the words to bring you comfort, but they made me more angry. I really wanted to talk. I really wanted to cry. I wanted people to say, what do you need? Right. You know, what can I do? People didn't know how to deal with it. Anger has a way of dividing, destroying, and crushing even the strongest of family and friendships. In the midst of this pain, Ivan discovers, without realizing it, why I do this podcast. 
He learned about the healing power of God, the hope it provides, and the strength it nurtures. The Word of God heals. It provided healing for both Janine and Ivan, and it allowed them to grow and move forward in love, to move out of the isolation of fear and pain into the real world. However, healing is not the same thing as protection, which unfortunately, Ivan and Janine will soon find out. You know, I guess a lot of my friends weren't raised the way I was in church, so they really didn't have a, a deep spiritual connection. And therefore, you know, to say I'm, I'm praying for you, you know, those those words didn't come to mind for them. And, you know, when I later on, you know, months later, when I when friends asked me, you know, I've been calling, I've been reaching out. Why haven't you reached out? And, you know, I said, you know, I'm angry with you. Where were you? Why didn't you call me? You know, and, uh, you know, a lot of my closest friends said, I did not know what to say to you. I mm-hmm. didn't know what to say. It was just like this, this terrible little taboo, you know, thing that people did not know how to confront and just be there for me. You know, mm-hmm. so people kind of just disappeared and said, you know, I, I figured that you would call me when you needed me. I figured when you wanted to talk, you would reach out to me. Right. And I just felt like, you know, do I pick up the phone and call a friend to just cry right now? You know, I just want to cry and, and let someone listen to me cry, you know, and when people aren't calling you, you, you kind of isolate yourself. You feel like there's no one to talk to. You have all these obligations to go on cooking and cleaning your home and keeping your, your family going. And I don't want to do any of it. You know, I, I wanted to just fall into the fetal position and, and cry my days away. And it was an, a very lonely year for me that first year going through that, um, I buried myself back into my work and, you know, kept as busy as I could, pushed a lot of people away. Mm-hmm. And then as the year kind of came to a close, you know, the people who, who really did love me, you know, sat me down and said, you know, I'm sorry, I know that you're angry, angry with me, but please hear me out, hear my side of, of what I went through when you went through this loss. I, I was frozen. I didn't know what to say. So, you know, some of the more meaningful relationships, I realized that I had to let go of the anger. It wasn't their fault. They didn't know how to deal with it. And, you know, I knew that these people loved me and were trying to support me in in the best way they knew how. And I had to allow them to do that. How how was it between you and Ivan? Um, The first few months, I would say, were rough because I was so angry. You know, I didn't realize that he was trying to be strong for me. And, um, you know, I, I kind of cocooned myself from everybody and everything. And he tried to support me and nurture me and, and, you know, bring me food and bring me coffee or tea and, you know, try to break down the walls that I had built up, you know, of, of anger. And um, he was going through his own things. And as a man, you know, he had to be strong. He had to play that role of, you know, I'm strong, I'm going to work. And, and I didn't realize that I really didn't allow him the chance to mourn and be weak and cry and, you know, say why, you know, he has no sons. This was his first son. Mm -hmm. You know, why did that happen? So after a few months, you know, of us confronting this, it, it brought us closer. You know, it certainly brought us closer. Um, Ivan had never really, uh, been spiritual or religious, but this certainly brought him to God. 
it started his his spiritual journey of him reading and trying to find enlightenment and and understanding and mm-hmm. purpose you know and where i was always the one who was so big about god and talking about god and you know it was like our roles just reversed i was so angry and 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 bitter and he became you know the voice of reason you know it's not about our timing it's god and and we have to have faith and you know our roles switched so drastically you know it was really looking back on it it's it's almost you know funny to think you know this this guy who who always felt that you know church was like the the car salesman you know mentality is what he used to say about it and and he really became you know like my spiritual leader at that point, you know, breaking down the Bible for me and breaking down stories for me in ways that I had never even considered. And huh. it made us, it made us Bible study a lot at home, yeah. you know? Yeah. It really made us, you know, talk with our children about God and make sure that our children were in Sunday school. And, and we went back to church and, you know, tried to become a stronger unit together as our, as a family. And, and it did, it strengthened our relationship with our stepdaughters and, Our children got closer. I want to take a minute to thank you for listening. Ordinary Voices is a place for people searching for spiritual meaning in daily life. We are invited into the lives of ordinary people like Janine and Ivan with the thought we might find some of our own struggles in these stories or maybe even challenged to reframe our views. Either way, In reflection upon these voices, we just might discover hope. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend. In this anxiety-ridden world, people are desperate for finding spiritual meaning. Ultimately, they're searching for hope. To me, there's no better way to find it than by connecting daily life to faith. Go to the website OrdinaryVoices.org. That's OrdinaryVoices.org to help find other shows and to sign up for the daily devotions. The podcast is available on all apps providing podcast support. It makes for a great listen on a work time commute. This is a listener-supported show, so if you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. Thank you for listening. Now let's return to Janine's story. body chance to break heal i thought i did i thought i did i got pregnant the next year here i was in april and i was literally like on the same gestational week with this next pregnancy again it was a boy we felt like matthew was coming back to us and that you know all of this was some divine sign right that he was returning and it was going to happen the high-risk doctor said, I want to do a vaginal cerclage. I want to stitch up your cervix. It seems like your cervix has taken a lot of abuse with all these miscarriages, and I think your cervix is weak. I want to stitch you up. And usually that allows a woman to carry the baby to term. I said, let's do it. I had great health insurance. Let's, let's get it done. So I went in for that surgery, and they stitched up my cervix. I was still getting the progesterone shots and things like that. Um, going in for all these these weekly you know visits, and um, I felt hopeful. I felt hopeful that now my body had this extra strengthening in it, and I was going to get there. So April twentieth, we went in for a checkup, and we went in for the three D sonogram, which was so exciting because that's when you really get to see the baby, you know, and see what it looks like. 
And uh, after they did the 3D sonogram, they decided to to do a vaginal sonogram and, and measure my cervix. And lo and behold, they said, the baby is pushing through the cerclage. So the stitching that they had done on my cervix, the baby's foot was pushing through the stitching. Mm-hmm. And I just looked at my husband and I said, no. I just lost it. I said, no, 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 no. I am not going to the hospital and I am not delivering this baby. I don't care. You know, the doctor had to kind of force me out of his office after about two hours. He said, you got to go to the hospital. You have to go to the hospital. So we went to the hospital, called my mom, told my mom, it looks like I'm going to lose this baby. And uh, I fought the doctors like crazy. I said, I'm not pushing. You're not going to hook me up to Pitocin. You're not going to do anything. I'm going to lay here and I'm going to see if this baby goes back in. They said, well, we'll allow you to, you know, handle this how you see fit, but you're going to get sick. You know, your your body's open right now and you're at risk for infection and we can't force you to go into labor, but this is what's going to happen. And I said, well, then we'll see. And I, I laid there that day and I just, I prayed to God and I just kept praying, God, please. I kept trying to, you know, use the power of my mind to envision this baby going back in. And, you know, that night I was with a horrible fever and I was sick. And the doctor said, you are getting very sick. We have to start the delivery. They took me into the OR. They had to remove the cerclage before they could deliver the baby because my cervix was about to, to tear. So I went in for that procedure, had the, the cerclage removed, and then they said, okay, now we're going to start delivering this baby. You would think, you know, pushing out a small baby like this, that they come right out, but no. It is a full, regular delivery as if you're pushing out an eight-pound baby. And I went through this delivery all over again. I was in the same room that I delivered Matthew in in the same hospital and it was just you know the worst experience the worst i could not believe that a year later april 20th 2010 at 22 weeks i'm giving birth to another boy that's going to die The medical profession does amazing things. It can heal the body in ways the world never imagined 40 years ago, but it still cannot do everything. Doctors cannot give Janine all the answers because they don't know them. Frustrated, another wave of anger descends upon Janine's heart. This is the time she found support in the most unlikely places. Her job tells her, actually demands of her, take advantage of the disability option. Take time off. Her co-workers bring her family food. Ivan's professional relationships and customers bring food. The family eats for two months on gifts from people they barely know. The friends were still struggling to cope and remained relatively silent. Spiritually grounded though, healing this time will be different. We did the same thing. I had the pastor come up. We baptized him, you know, footprints done and went through all the normal things that that I felt I was entitled to as a mom to say my son was here. Mm -hmm. We named him Jacob Xavier Lopez. 
and we spent some time with him. We took pictures like we did with Matthew. My mom got to hold him. And it was just very somber, you know. It was just this this stillness in the room of all of us kind of looking at each other like, why is this happening a second year in a row? What the hell does this mean? Mm-hmm. You know, what is God trying to tell us? You know, eventually I had to, to let him go. The next day leaving that hospital was probably the worst day of my life. You know, watching women be wheeled out of the hospital with their baby in their hands, balloons. And I'm being wheeled out of the hospital down to my car with nothing, you know, like a blanket and empty handed again. Mm -hmm. And I just felt so broken. I felt like this failure. You know, why can't I give my husband a son? Why can't we have a child? You know, what is wrong with me? I wanted the doctors to tell me what is wrong. You know, is, is there some kind of an infection going on? You know, I had the, the baby tested. I wanted answers and no one could really give me the answers that I was looking for. My doctor finally came and said, you know, you've been pregnant every year for the past, you know, seven years. You have not given your body a break. And it's like, well, why did you tell me I needed a break? You know, I didn't know I needed a break. And, you know, and, you know, just angry at everybody and everything, every answer that I did get, I was just, you know, so angry about. And, you know, the doctor said, look, you know, you're young. You can try again. After losing Jacob, I just said, I don't think I can do this mentally. I am so scared. I just don't think I can go through that again because if I lose another baby in this way, I, I, I don't know if I can maintain my mental stability. I just don't think I'm that strong. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, well, look, you know, there's, there's a lot of new research coming out of some of the best hospitals. When you're ready, we'll try that. If we have to lay you, you know, on an angle where your legs are up for nine months, you know, there's things, you know, hospitals that do that and you'll be in the hospital for nine months. It'll be a sacrifice. So, you know, that, that gave me some form of hope that, you know, maybe I just needed a different hospital and a different doctor and somewhere in the future after I gave my body a chance to heal that it would, you know, it, I, eventually I would become a mom. You know, after I got tired of crying and, and, you know, just isolating myself, I pulled out my journal one day and I just started reading some of the things that I had written in my youth. You know, when you're young, you're strong. And, and it started to remind me of, of how strong and tough I used to be. And I said, you know, what happened to this girl? You know, where, where did she go? You know, I feel so weak and vulnerable right now in my life. Listen. <laughs> that sounds insane. I want you to know how do you want to know how insane that is? I mean, to be sitting there thinking of the thing that you just went through for seven years. Oh, yeah. To be sitting there thinking of yourself as weak is insane. Yeah. yeah, I felt so weak. I felt I don't know if that's good pastoral care. I'm just saying it just sounds <laughs> insane to hear you say that you're weak. I just you know, I just was very broken. I was very broken. I could not talk to anybody without breaking down. I couldn't think about the boys without breaking down. I just, I was an emotional basket case. I just was constantly crying. And for me, that felt weak. It felt very weak. There's nothing I can do to take away Janine's feeling of weakness. 
There's no level of compassion or love that Ivan can give to her to stop her from feeling broken. Sometimes those of us who stand beside a loved one who is suffering, all we need to do is provide ears, arms, and silence. Still those who stand in silence are also grieving. We don't hear Ivan's story, but Ivan is very much a part of Janine's story. As we listen to her, imagine the story without Ivan, without his compassion and patience. It'd be a totally different story. Now Ivan has a great idea for healing. decided, you know, maybe we need to go away. You know, he said, we haven't gotten away. We've been, you know, doctors for two years. You need a break. Let's let's go have some fun. So as we got ready to leave, I said, well, what about the boys? What do you mean? I said, I'm taking the boys. If this is a family vacation, well, then the boys are coming with us. I have two urns and they're coming with us. So I packed them up. Well, I had to go through security at some point. <laughs> and, and now the security says, what is in your bag? And I look at my husband and I said, well, <laughs> I didn't expect this. I have to explain what I have in my bag now. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, reluctantly pulled two urns out of my bag and I say, these are my sons. And the security guard just looks at me like, you know, do I have to look inside these urns and see that there really remains? And I, I said, look, you know, we're going on a family vacation. We just lost two boys and I wasn't going to leave them at home. This is our first family vacation since, and they're coming with me. He said, put them back in your bag. I understand. Go through. Right. And my husband kind of looked at me and just, what is going on right now in my life? You know, and <laughs> once we went through security, we kind of laughed about it. And, and, you know, my husband said, this is nuts. But, you know, hey, whatever you need to do to heal, that's what we're going to do. Janine discovers her voice, and in discovering her voice, she finds strength. Her strengths will become the compassion and understanding for other women going through similar journeys. I threw myself into writing. You know, I had so much that I wanted to write about. I, I had worked with children. I had experiences with trauma growing up in Brooklyn, you know. I wanted to really dig deep into the source of my anger because I knew it wasn't just that I had lost these boys. I knew that I had a lot of, of pain that I kind of never had dealt with. And, and I just wanted to find healing with all these things. I wanted to write about all of these things. I wanted to, to help somebody understand my journey and what I was going through and, and how I came to be where I was at that day. And it made me strong. It made me strong to kind of put all this out there on paper. I wrote to my children. I wrote to the boys. It made them feel real. It made them feel like they were on this journey with me. You know, shortly after I left my job, I went back to work and I said, I don't belong here. You know, this is not my path. Here I am, like, finally living my career in business. You know, all this schooling that I did, all these, these loans I have. And now I'm telling my husband, I think I want to be a writer. You know, after the year passed, I got stronger. I was able to talk about what had happened to me. I was able to share my story with people and, and not be a basket case and, and, and break down all the time. And, and I, that to me was confirmation that I was getting past this. And, you know, my family started to ask me, 
are you going to try again? You know, what's going on? And my husband was growing anxious and he kept saying, you know, I'd like to try again. And I was just dead set on, no, I'm done. He felt like he was getting older and we were losing time. And, and he said, well, when, when are we going to try again? You know, I, I think we need to try again. Let's find another hospital. Let's find another doctor. And I would just look at him like he was crazy. I would, you know, it kind of put a strain on our relationship after we had grown so close. I was like, well, then you have the baby, you know, you're not the one delivering the baby and you're not the one feeling this baby inside of you kicking. And, you know, you do it. If, if you think it's that easy, you know, you go ahead and do it. I'm not doing it. Ivan discovers why men need to be careful about pressing the baby issue, and Janine lets him know. I'm only laughing because I've gotten the same lecture from Peggy. As Janine talks about her scar tissue, though, everything she needed to do to clean out her body, I started wondering how many soldiers even go through this many surgeries and psychological trauma. She endures, she persists, and she moves on. that I wasn't getting pregnant, I just said, well, I must not be able to get pregnant again. You know, the last delivery was so bad. I really almost died. I had so much scar tissue that my placenta would not come out. And they were taking it out piece by piece by piece. It was, it was, I was screaming in agony. It was so painful. And they ended up having to give me some kind of chemotherapy just so that my body would release what was inside of me because it was just so built up in there. The doctor couldn't get it out. And she said, you're, you're going to get very sick. You know, I don't want to do a hysterectomy on you. I want to save your uterus, but it's covered in scar tissue. So um, oh my goodness. I had all these fears. You know, I said, you know, how am I going to get pregnant again? You know, I, I can't get pregnant again. We've been trying and I'm not getting pregnant. So, it, it you know, that's it. The ship has sailed for us. And when I turned 37, I went to my OB and I said, I think I want to get on some form of birth control because I'm getting older and it doesn't look like it's going to happen for me. And I don't want to be a 40 year old mom. And I got the prescription and I came home and I told my husband, you know, my birthday's in a month and I'm going to take birth control. I'm going to start getting on birth control. And he said, you know, why, why would you do that? And I said, I'm old, you know, time, five years have passed. There's no baby. And, you know, it's time to kind of let go of this dream and be realistic about it. I don't want to get pregnant by accident at 40. So, you know, we had a really long talk about it. And he said, you know, I think you're making a mistake. I'm going to support you in whatever you do. But I ask that you wait until your birthday. Give it a month. Think about it. Because I feel like a baby is in our future. I feel like if it's God's will, it's going to happen when he's ready for it to happen. My attitude, my Puerto Rican, Aries, whatever you want to call it, just kind of rolled my eyes, you know, and I was like, whatever, fine, I'll hold it, no big deal. My 37th birthday came, we went away for the weekend with friends, and I was feeling a little odd while we were away. I started to have a drink, and then I felt a little off, and something told me, don't drink anymore. So I stopped drinking. We came back home that weekend and uh, I had a test in my downstairs bathroom that had been there for about seven years. No lie. And it was a brand new box, you know, had never opened it. 
I didn't even tell Ivan anything. And something told me, take the test. And I went and I, I took the test and it came back positive. And I just rocked to my knees. Ivan was upstairs and I ran upstairs and I told Ivan, look at this. He said, what's that? I said, I just took a test and it's positive. And his eyes just kind of opened, you know, like, you've got to be kidding me. I said, this test just came back positive. I don't know what this means, but I got to get to the doctor. Okay, Janine is 37 years old and discovers she's pregnant. We started this show with her saying she's 38 years old with a son and a daughter. So you would think, end of the story, right? Let's get the balloons out for that joyous ride out of the hospital she yearned for. We can talk about motherhood and the whole deal. Except, we're only halfway through the story. Hope appears, but the challenges are far from being over. It might seem natural to frame her story in terms of Sarah and Abraham. Sarah was old. She considered a child out of the question. She even laughed at the thought of it. Instead, for this first part, I turned to Moses. This Lent at the church I'm serving, Salem Lutheran Church in West St. Paul, we are focusing on God's promises. And in this story, the people of Israel sit against God and build a golden calf. Afterwards, Moses is in the tent of meeting, speaking directly with God when God tells him to leave this place and go to the place that he had promised. But Moses is afraid to go. He wants to know who will go with him. Then the Lord speaks a promise, a promise he gives to each one of us. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Janine learned this promise as a child from Pastor Jim, from Pastor Bob, from Peggy and I, and from Bob and Terry Spears, and from the whole family of faith at Trinity in Brooklyn. In the depths of his pain, Ivan discovered this promise of God. The presence of the Lord will go with him, and it enabled him to go and find rest. In the midst of her weakness and brokenness, Janine remembered the promise of God. No matter where she went, child or no child, the presence of the Lord was going with her, and God would give her rest. It's a promise put through the test, but endures and persists in their life together. In this promise is hope. I hope you discover it and how it can help you find rest as well. That's our show. Part two will follow. Find out what happens when Janine and Ivan confront the forces that threaten the very power of God, insurance and medical malpractice. I want to thank you for listening and thank Janine for sharing. In the days ahead, pray for our nation and all its elected leaders. Speak the truth in love, listen so others feel heard, and let's do the difficult work of building community together. Great things happen when good people work together to overcome challenges. If you like what you've heard, please share it with a friend. Remember, people are hungry for a spiritual conversation and in deep need of hope. Go to the website OrdinaryVoices.org to find out other shows and to sign up for the Daily Devos. This is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website. www 
www.ordinaryvoices.org. That's www.ordinaryvoices.org. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you again in part two of It's Her Story. <laughs>